to our scripture for this morning, Pastor Bill will continue preaching from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Starting from verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups and in the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And so taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to eat and to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all as well. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Good morning. If we've not yet had the privilege of meeting, my name is Bill Smith. As Luke said, I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And we are picking back up our study today in the book of Mark, and we've come to a really unique story. This is the only miracle that Jesus did that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And it's a miracle that has all the hallmarks of an eyewitness account rather than being a made-up story. We've mentioned this several times on a Sunday morning, but legends and myths of that time period were not like our modern novels. Ancient fiction only included details, specific details, that actually served to make a point or to move the story along. This account, however, has details that don't make a point. There's details like five loaves, two fishes, 5,000 men, numbers that don't advance the storyline, that never get referred to again, things that are almost incidental. But what that specificity tells us is that what we are given is an eyewitness testimony that someone actually saw five loaves and two fish and 5,000 men, and that even though those numbers don't produce any kind of spiritual point, they tell us those details anyway. Why? Because that's actually what they saw and that's what they experienced. They saw and experienced something that was so significant to the life and the story of Jesus Christ that you can't tell his story without telling this one. And so there's something very special that we need to pay attention to today. Now Mark gives us a little bit of a run-up to this story. He tells us that the 12 apostles have now returned. Jesus had sent them out to the neighboring villages to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come, to call people to repent, 
and to do a couple different kinds of signs, miracles, healings, exorcisms, things that would validate what they were saying, but things that also communicate this is what the character and the nature of the kingdom of God is like. The 12 did that. They've now come back. They're reporting into Jesus, telling him all that they had done and taught, verse 30. And you realize they've created quite a stir. So much of an impression that people are now coming to them, not just keeping Jesus busy, but also coming to them, coming out of need, wanting something from these guys keeping them so busy from so many people with so many needs that verse 31 they didn't even have leisure to eat you have this picture of a great crowd flocking to the 12 disciples converging on them not calmly not waiting patiently but it's a chaotic picture verse 31 people are coming and going they're milling they're swirling around they're pressing in as soon as one person has helped, someone else pushes their way in, takes their place, won't even let the apostle take a breath, get something to eat. And Jesus says to his guys, enough. Let's get away. Come away with me to get some rest. They pack up, hop in the boat, head out. But verse 33, many saw them going and recognized them. They ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, can you imagine that, what that was like? You've already been worn out. Jesus just promised you we're going to get some rest. You're in the boat. The boat is going, and you come into the shore, and you see people running to you. Many people from all the towns, 5,000 men plus women plus children, all streaming toward you in one great mass. Jesus and his guys have touched a nerve. They've tapped into a need that not only that people have, but that people feel. When Matthew writes about this moment, he describes why it is that they are so interested, so engaged in finding Jesus. He says that as Jesus looks at them, he sees people who are harassed and helpless. Two great descriptive words that nobody wants to be. Harassed, what does that mean? It means their lives are not easy. They've got their own issues that they're wrestling with personally. They're hassled by others relationally. They feel the pressure of just trying to make work, life work when it won't. They're harassed, but they're also helpless. They don't know what to do anymore. They don't know where to turn. Everything that they have tried doesn't work. Everything that they've been promised would actually help does not deliver like they hoped it would. They're helpless. They're out of options. They know their lives are not what they ought to be. But they've caught a glimmer of hope here in Jesus and his disciples. And so they have dropped everything that they were doing, run on foot to be here into the wilderness, looking for what they do not have but desperately need. And Jesus looks out on them, and he assesses their need. He sums up what's wrong with them, verse 34, that they are like sheep without a shepherd. They have no one to guide them, no one to provide for them, no one to protect them. And Jesus steps forward in that moment and shepherds them. Steps forward in order to be their shepherd, to be for them what they do not have. Now I want you to think with me. If you are facing that many harassed and helpless people, 
you can see all of the needs on the surface. You know there have to be a lot more needs underneath the surface. If you're facing that crowd, what is the primary thing that you think they need? What is the first thing that you're going to do in order to help them? Here's what Jesus does first. Verse 34. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus sizes up their need. And he thinks that their biggest deficit, the thing that they lack most, is that they don't know how to think about and organize their world correctly. That something is broken in the way that they look out on their world and therefore broken in how they approach it. Something broken in how they process what's going on around them and how they respond to what's going on. He thinks that there are things that they need to know in order to live well, things that they don't know. And so his primary intervention in that critical moment is to teach them many things. Not just for a few minutes, but for a long time. We don't know exactly how long but he taught them many things until verse 35, it grew late. So this is not a short seminar. Instead, he's packing in tons of teaching so that they are able in order to live well in this world. He's teaching, which in, its, in and of itself is not all that remarkable. We all do this. We all teach. We all have a way of understanding our world and a way of communicating that understanding to other people. We have a way of understanding how we got here, what the purpose of life is, where we're going, how we're going to get there, what's important to value along the way, and what's not important to value along the way. We all have those things in our mind, and as we talk, those things come out of our mouths. We talk about what makes sense to us and what we value. We, we can't help it. It just comes out in ordinary, normal conversation, and in that sense, we all teach. We believe that what we think is best, and we say it out loud, because we think, what? The world would be a whole lot better off if everyone else thought about it and approached it the way that I do. Some of us are more intentional about what we teach and how we try to influence people. Some of us are less so. But we all do it. From the time when we're very little children, before we can barely express what we want and what we like, we're teaching. Do you ever watch a little kid who tells his or her parents over and over and over and over and over the same thing? What are they doing? They're communicating, this is the way the world should be. And it's your job to give it to me. You can be a little more aggressive, they throw a tantrum, but they're communicating the same thing. They're saying, you need to get on board with the way I understand the world to be. We start this at a very young age. We're all teachers in that sense. But that doesn't mean that simply because all of us teach that everything we teach is equally beneficial for everyone. For instance, this crowd is living under King Herod's jurisdiction. They're living under his authority, under the way that he thinks life should be. We got a little bit of a taste of what that's like last week the kinds of things that make sense to him, the kinds of things that he values, what he thinks goes into having a good life. If you recall, he threw a great big party for himself. He surrounded himself with the movers and the shakers of his day. He invited the political, the economic, the military leaders. 
they had entertainment of a kind that was so central he was willing to give a dancer up to half his kingdom for her performance. You can imagine what that, no, don't imagine, but you have an idea of what that dance was like. And on the outside, that looks like living large, right? Rich, powerful, erotic, like it can't get any better. And then it all goes south so quickly. What looks so full of celebration and life ends in grief and it ends in death. His approach to life doesn't work. But the people who had to live under his rule, under what Herod values, they've known that for a long time. They're desperate out there in the wilderness, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They are filled with unmet needs, and they know that they don't have anybody to help them. Herod is not a good shepherd. His approach to life doesn't bring life. Neither, however, does the religion of the day. You have to remember, this is Israel. This is the nation that God called out of all the other nations in order that they would have a special friendship with him. These are the people that he talked to, the people who have his words, words that tell them what he's like, what he thinks about, what he feels inside of himself. It's a very religious country. You have the temple in Jerusalem, you have synagogues spread throughout the country, places where God's people can come to study his word. It's a nation that is filled with priests, filled with religious leaders, but it's a nation that distorted what God said. And that distortion was not a small one. It left the people feeling harassed and helpless, feeling like they had nobody to guide them, nobody to care for them. A country that was big on religion and very short on shepherds. Their religious approach to life does, does not bring life. Life in Israel, under Israel's leaders, under Israel's institutions, was not working. It wasn't leading to a good, ordered, settled kind of life where people felt at peace, where they felt provided for, where they felt taken care of, like they had everything that they needed in order to live well. And so Jesus, seeing all of this, began to teach what he thought they needed to know if they were going to live well, which sounds great. But let me ask you, why should we take his teaching seriously, more seriously, more seriously than we take anyone else's teaching. If everyone teaches, why should we take what Jesus says as something that stands out against what everyone else teaches and as something that is so valuable that we ourselves would be willing to drop everything that we're doing, race to where he is, wear ourselves out, sit in the wilderness under the sun to hear him? And those are not academic questions. Those are questions that Mark thinks are important. And so he addresses those questions. Here's why you should pay attention to what Jesus has to say. If you were listening, he actually addressed that last week as well as this week. He gives us reasons to take seriously what God says, but they're not reasons like we're used to. See, we're used to, in the West, reasons that say why this idea is good. What is it that validates this idea? And we tend to think in geometric proof kind of terms. You know, a, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's the kind of thing we're looking for. Can we interact and engage with this idea? There are those kinds of reasons in Scripture. 
Our faith is very logical. It's very rational. We're supposed to think. We're supposed to think hard about life and about faith and how those two connect. That's why Jesus is out here teaching for hours and hours and hours. But those are not the kind of reasons that Mark gives you in this passage. Instead, you're given reasons both last week and this week that give you confidence not in what is said, but that give you confidence in the one who is saying it. Confidence in the person that then leads you to have confidence in what they're saying. Let me unpack that a little bit. Last week, what did we see? We saw people rejecting God's authority, people who did not want to be taught by God. And we saw that as their lives unfolded, that their lives ended badly. They ended up with hardened hearts, hearts that were hardened both against God and against everybody else. In other words, they trusted something else other than God, and the result of which is that they ruined their lives and they ruined other people's lives. So instead of having more life, they actually had less. That's a negative reason for why we should trust God and God's authority. Because if you trust anything else, it ends up ruining your life. This week we're after, offered a positive reason to take in everything that God says. You realize that on that day that Jesus is there with the crowd, he spends most of his time teaching them. And we know absolutely nothing from Mark of the content of his teaching. That's where the majority of his time was spent, but we don't hear any of those things. And so the focus of this passage is not on the content of what he said. The focus is on the person who said it. And as you focus in on Jesus, suddenly you see three different reasons to listen to him. Long introduction, like they normally are, so shorter message on the back end. But three reasons to listen to Jesus. First, we learn what it is that motivates Jesus to teach. Second, we learn what his teaching produces. And then third, we learn who it is really who's doing the teaching. So what motivates Jesus to teach, what his teaching produces, and who he is who's doing the teaching. Three reasons that then allow our hearts to say, man, whatever you have to say, I'm all in. First, what is it that motivates Jesus to teach? How come he's doing it? It's not a trivial question. You remember the context here. There's this large, swirling mass of humanity that's descending on him and the 12 apostles while the apostles were trying to report on what he'd given them to do. The crowd is consumed with themselves. They can't see that the 12 guys need a break, need a chance to eat. They just keep pressing in on them and pressing them for more and more and more. Jesus intervenes so that his guys can get a break, which as an aside here ought to really encourage you when you follow Jesus. What is he most interested in? What you can do for him? You realize, no, he's not interested in grinding you up and, and spitting you out. He's interested in you more for who you are than for what you can do for them, him. And so he calls these guys and he says, we need to get away. That means as you follow Jesus, you ought to hear him inside of your own heart and your own mind inviting you to get away, to spend time with him, to be with him. That was his intention, and the crowd would not let him do that. And it would be very easy in that moment to be angry with the people, to only see their selfishness, to only see their demandingness, to be frustrated with them, 
frustrated because all you see is their sinfulness, their self-absorption, and Jesus does something else. He sees more than that. Pay attention to that little word in verse 34. He saw a great crowd. He saw them. He let himself see that they were harassed and helpless. He looked and he saw they, they don't look good. He didn't glance at them and roll his eyes, didn't look at them and then turn away. Instead, he looked at them and he kept on looking at them and he thought about what it was that he was seeing. He thought, here are sheep without a shepherd, people who are aimless, people who don't know where they're supposed to go, what they're supposed to do when they get there, people who are lost. Here are people that I'm seeing who can't take care of themselves. They have nowhere else to go. No one else to turn to. He sees their true condition. And because he sees that, he's not angry. You don't get angry at somebody who's lost, right? What do you do when you see somebody who's lost? You, you want to help. I was down at Suburban Station in Philly about a month ago. I'm down below the station where the trains come in and out, and that's a place that always confuses me. There are multiple platforms. Each platform has tracks on both sides, and each track has a section A and a section B, and I have absolute complete confidence that I can get on the wrong train and that I'll end up somewhere in Doylestown or, or West Trenton as opposed to Glenside. So when I'm down there, I'm constantly checking the, the arrival and the departure signs. I'm trying to make sure that I'm in the right place. A month ago, I think I'm in the right place. I'm sitting down waiting for the train. And I look across at the other platform, and I see a lady. She comes down the stairs. She has one of those rolly suitcases, and she looks lost. And maybe I'm just projecting. But she looks like she doesn't know where she's going. And so she's studying the, the different arrival departure signs. She's looking at her phone. She starts one way down the platform, and then she does a U-turn, comes this way, and then she passes where I think she ought to be, and she starts talking to somebody else and eventually goes back up the stairs. And what am I thinking? I'm thinking she's lost. And in that moment, all I want to do is help because I hate being lost. Now in that moment, I'm not thinking about how good or a bad a person she might be. She might have been incredibly ugly to her, the people that she lives with that morning, or really horrible at work. None of that is on my radar. She may hold all kinds of thoughts, believe different things, have values that I don't agree with. None of that is on the table in that moment, why? Because in that moment, what she really needs is help to not be lost anymore. You don't get angry or frustrated with lost people. Instead, what? <laughs> you feel for them. You, you want to help. Compassion starts to come up inside of you. That's what's happening with Jesus. He sees the crowd bearing down on him. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. He saw them in their lostness, and their lostness mattered to him. They mattered to him. He feels deeply for them. He wants something better for them, even if it costs him what he had planned. And so he sits down then to give them the very best that he has to give them. His compassion for them and what they're facing drives him to teach them the kinds of things that he thinks they actually need to know. 
Now, don't mistake, these two passages, Herod and Jesus, are back-to-back in order to help you see the contrast. Herod calls himself the king, and he indulges himself. Jesus, the true king, denies himself. Herod takes a birthday party, a celebration of life, and he brings death out of it. Jesus takes the wilderness, a place where there is no food, a place of death, and Jesus produces food there and brings life out of it. Herod's approach to life ends people's lives. Jesus' approach breathes life into them. Why would you trust what Jesus teaches? Look at what moves him. He's tuned into real needs. He cares about the needs that he sees, and he will sacrificially give himself to meet those needs. He will make his life harder to make your life better. That's someone whose character you can trust. That's someone that you want to learn from. That's someone that you want to have see you when you're harassed and helpless. Makes me wonder, do you know that that's who you have as a God? Do you know that he actually sees you? Had a rough interaction earlier this week, disappeared into my office, picked up my phone, start playing a game, hoping that that just sort of distracts me. And in that moment, the Spirit of God breaks in and reminds me that in this moment, Jesus sees me. You have to live out your faith when you're harassed and helpless. You have to have those moments with the Lord where you're reminded that God sees you right now when you don't know what to do and you don't have any other, any other place to go. And he doesn't see you with anger. He doesn't see you with disgust. He sees you with compassion. Do you know that that's your God? Do you experience that, that sense of his eyes on you when you're overwhelmed by life? When you're struggling with that same thing that you've been struggling with before that you just can't seem to get over? When other people are hammering on you again, do you have that sense that he sees you, that he's moved with compassion, that he moves toward you to be that shepherd? That's what he's showing you here. That's one of the reasons for you to trust him. It's a reason that gives you confidence when he has things to say to you, things that you might not necessarily like hearing. He gives you reasons to believe that he's a shepherd who only speaks in order to care for you. That's point one. That's what motivates Jesus to teach. Point two, what does his teaching produce? We've already seen what the leaders and the institutions of his day produce, people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what their ideas and their values produce. Against that backdrop, what do you see out here in the wilderness? You see that people are no longer coming and going. They're no longer milling around. They're no longer pressing the 12 apostles beyond their own limits. Instead, people are listening. They're not clamoring for attention because they're afraid that, you know, they're going to be ignored otherwise. They're taking in what they're hearing. They're staying through it for a really long time. They don't get up and go home because they have something better to do. Instead, they think that what Jesus is saying has real application to their lives. That what he's saying does not apply just to some ritual, religious kind of activity. But that has to do with the everyday needs that they themselves feel. That he is addressing how they're feeling in a way that helps them. And so they sit there drinking it in. And when Jesus is done teaching at the end of the day, there's no sense of that mob from earlier. 
Instead, they're all sitting down together in community, groups of 50, groups of 100, according to verse 40, and they're eating together. Now, what do you do when you eat together? You talk about what happened during the rest of the day. You can imagine they're processing everything that they've already heard, and they're doing that together, fully satisfied in their souls, now in their bodies. And make sure you understand this. The outside world is still the same. The leaders are still the same. The institutions are still the same. Religion is still taking place the way religion does. All those voices promoting their agendas are still the same. Still leaving everybody else feeling worked up and overwhelmed. But something out here in the wilderness is different. There's a different voice out here. It's a voice that as people listen to it, is life-giving, not life-stealing. Calming rather than disturbing. Soothing, not riling. It turns a mob that's consumed by their own needs into a community where people, in just, they just enjoy being together and they're fully satisfied. And again, like Scripture does, it's inviting you at this moment to think about your own life, to think about the effect that the voices that you listen to are having on you, on how you feel after you scroll through your newsfeed, how you feel after you talk with your friends and your relatives about the events of the, the larger world. It's inviting, to, it, it's inviting you to ask yourself, what effect do those voices have that you are giving yourself to, that you're listening to? Are they calming you down? Or are they cranking you up? Do they leave you feeling anxious, scared, uncertain, angry? Or do you walk away from the voices that you listen to feeling content, confident, joyful, peaceful, even in the middle of a chaotic world? Do they turn you inward so that you're even more focused on yourself? Or do they turn you outward? so that you see others and feel compassion for them, so that you care about other people, not just yourself? Do the voices that you listen to fill you up so that you feel like, now I've got a ton of resources and I can afford to give away to things to other people? Or do the voices that you listen to leave you feeling like you have nowhere to go and you have no idea what to do? And I know because a number of us have talked together over the last year that a number of the voices that you've been listening to have not been real helpful to you over this last year. I know some of you have had to stop subscribing to certain things because they just keep jacking you up. I know that others of you have backed away from all sources because it's just been too much. And I think there's wisdom there, but let me ask you, what have you replaced those unhelpful voices with? What have you replaced their teaching with? See, it's one thing to cut out negative influences. You need to do that. But if you just cut out negative influences, that's not the same as actually having things fill you and teach you and help you to deal with the larger world. There are only, you, don't believe, you won't believe this, but there are only so many gaming videos that you can watch. There are only so many times you can Google silly things that cats do and watch those videos. What are those? They're, they're nice. They're a mental break. But they all end. And when they end, guess what? The larger world is still there, the one that was so challenging that you felt you had to run away from it. 
what God says does give you what you need. And you can see that in the results that it has on people. It's another reason why Jesus is worth listening to. So first, you can trust what Jesus has to say because he's a shepherd who sacrificially cares about you. Second, you can trust what he says by looking at the healthy impact that his words have on other people. Third, you can trust him because of who he really is. This passage is loaded with allusions and elements that take you back to two very important themes in the Old Testament. The first theme is of God meeting with his people in the wilderness. I'm just going to run through a list of things that you can start to see the parallels here between this account and what took place when God brought his people up out of Egypt. So in the wilderness in front of Jesus, in this desolate place, there's a huge crowd. And you remember that Israel, as they come out of Egypt, are a huge nation in the wilderness before they enter the promised land. You have 12 apostles picking up 12 baskets here. You can't help but remember how many tribes of Israel there are, that there are 12 tribes. There's a lengthy time of instruction here that Jesus gives that corresponds to when God gives his people his laws at Mount Sinai, and Moses spends 40 days with him. There's concern here among the disciples for where are we ever going to find enough food for all these people to eat? That reflects the time in Numbers 11 where Moses says the same thing to God, There's no way that there's enough food for all these people to have. There's a miraculous feeding here, food that literally comes out of nowhere, bread, that reminds you of the manna in the wilderness. You have people sitting in groups of 50s and 100, which reminds you of how Moses organized Israel in the wilderness. So what is it that you're seeing here in Mark? Twelve tribes, twelve tribes of Israel in a desolate place, eating breath that, bread that appears out of nowhere so that everyone has enough while they're being taught how to live. This is the newly reconstituted people of God, all centered around Jesus. Jesus is the one who gathers them. He's the one who taught them, organized them, calmed them, and provided for them. He's doing everything here that God did several millennia earlier. If you have eyes to see, what he's revealing in that moment is who he really is. That he is obviously fully human, but equally obviously fully God, come in the flesh to do what? To live among his people. If that's not enough, here's the second theme from the Old Testament that God promised that he would give his people a shepherd who would guard them and who would take care of them. Now, to get that imagery, go to verse 39 and pick up on that little detail that just jumps out at you. That the groups are to sit down on what? They sit down on green grass. Sounds a little odd for the wilderness. Scholars have noted that it's possible the word wilderness will allow for there to be pastures of green grass, especially after the winter rains that you would then graze your flocks on. Jesus makes people sit down on green grass which if you memorize Psalm 23 as a child, just jumps at you. Psalm 23, well-known psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. And you realize that green there in Mark is not an accident. It's supposed to evoke those kinds of images. The Lord is a shepherd, he makes you lie down in green pastures. The psalm goes on to talk about how he restores your soul. That he leads you 
in paths of righteousness. He teaches you this is the way to go. He prepares food for you all while you go on living in a land of death, in a land in the valley of the shadow of death. And the psalm says, this shepherd is the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. God is my shepherd. But if that's what God does, who is Jesus that he would do those same things? Hold that thought. Because you can ask the same question from the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34. God in that chapter talks to his people who are living in exile, and he tells them that Israel's leaders were horrible shepherds. That they were people whose only interest in the flock was for what they could get out of it. That they were not concerned to care for God's people, make God's people strong and healthy. Instead, they allowed the flock to get weak and sick until it was scattered, until it was shepherdless sheep. And God's solution to this problem is to promise, verse 11, chapter 34. I'm going to skip a couple of different places here. Behold, I, I myself, God speaking, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. A lot to take in, but God is promising two things there. He's promising that he would shepherd his people after the exile and that he would send a Davidic shepherd to feed them and care for them. Here in Jesus, what do you see? You see both of those promises coming together. Jesus is a descendant in the line of David, doing all the things that God said personally he would do. What is Jesus doing that is so important that all the gospel writers have to tell you about it? He's revealing who he is. He's letting people know that the one who is teaching them is God himself. And in that moment, he's giving you every reason to trust what he says. Now, what's the one thing here that he teaches that even you and I get to see most clearly? We don't know the content of what he said to the people, but we are taught one very important thing as we watch him feed the people. He's teaching us that what he longs for more than anything else is to be with his people. That's the long-term arc of the Old Testament all the way up to this moment. Why did God call Israel to himself out of Egypt so long ago? It was so that they would be with him, to dwell with him and live in friendship with him. Why does he promise a shepherd to his people after the exile? It's so that his people would know that their God is with them. Why did Jesus call the 12 apostles to himself? We studied this back in chapter 3, a little bit earlier. It was so that first they would be with him. Why does he call the 12 apostles away from the crowds that are overwhelming them? He's calling them to get away with him. And what is he offering this crowd of people, this newly established people of God, out there in the wilderness? He's offering to eat with them. 
share a meal with them, fellowship with them. He is not offering them free seminars on how to live a good life. He's not setting up soup kitchens in the desert. He's not planning to lead a revolt against the bad shepherds of Israel. He's offering to be with anyone who wants to be with him. That's the real need that the people had that day, to be with him. All of the benefits that they're experiencing, being taught, being fed, living in community, all of those benefits flow out of this greater provision that they have of being with him. The number one thing that they need to learn that day is that they needed the presence of God in their lives. They needed the relational presence of God, needed to have him with them, needed to experience him in a very real practical way. Not having him, not being with him, not having him shepherd and lead them, that was the root cause of all the other problems that they had. And it was that problem that he came chiefly to deal with. So he's out there in the wilderness, and he breaks the bread. It's another detail that's not just a random detail that Mark throws in. Instead, that's a detail that points forward. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it to his disciples, which is the exact same sequence that he's going to repeat at the Last Supper right before he's arrested. That was the night that he told them that the bread that he was breaking was his own body, and he was going to be broken for them, broken for you and for me. Broken to pay for all of the times that you and I have listened to another voice other than his. Broken for every time that we've preferred another voice to his. Broken so that we can be free from those voices and actually want to hear his voice and his voice alone. This one who's breaking the bread that day later himself would be broken. The one who gives life in the land of death would die himself so that you and I could live. And most importantly, he would rise again from the dead so that we could live with him. Not at some random time in the future, but right now. Right now, today, and every day after this moment. And so I want us to urge, I want to urge us to enter into that friendship with him. We're about to celebrate communion. We're going to eat together. Scripture helps us understand that our shepherd, Jesus, will be with us spiritually. And so I want to invite you, take a few moments to get your heart ready to eat with him. Maybe there are some voices that you've been listening to that you need to repent over because those are not his voices. Or maybe you haven't realized that he sees you. That he has nothing but compassion for you. That his desire is to soothe you and to calm you in the middle of a chaotic world. To be with you. That his body would be broken for your sin so that your body never would have to be broken for your sin. Take a few moments. Ask him to, to let you feel the reality of his compassion to experience him again. Or maybe you've never really confronted the reality of who he is. That he's not simply a good moral instructor, but that he's God himself come to look for his people, 
to gather them to himself because he wants them. And now that you see that, you realize, man, I, I want that too. I want him to guide me, to provide for me, to protect me. I want to embrace him. Tell him that. Tell him that you want him to be your shepherd.